to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just had a wonderful conversation with Mo Gowdout. He's an Egyptian entrepreneur, the former chief business officer for Google X, the author of the book Soul for Happy and more recently, Super Smart. Mo started off with a massive professional success in the early part of his career, hit a personal tragedy with losing his son and then went on a bit of a, a mission to seek out okay, how can we find happiness? That culminated in the book, Soul for Happy, where he has the nice simple mathematical equation for how you can achieve happiness. And now his newest book, Scary Smart, is all about the rise of artificial intelligence, what it may mean for us humans in the not too distant future, in the scarily close future. It's Mo time. I think really the the best place to start, Mo, is uh, a bit of an introduction of your early career. You were a, you were a high flyer, you were a hotshot early, international business expansion into the Middle East and into Africa. Can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the early career success and how that may or may not have led to personal success down the track? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm not a big shot anymore. I'm I'm very glad with that actually. So I I spend a big part of uh, of my life actually until today. I, I I live two lives if you want. One life is the life of the uh, originally engineer, software engineer, mathematician, physicist, if you want, that turned into a businessman because sadly the world is all about business, if you ask me. And uh, and I had an incredible career. I mean. I worked at Microsoft, at, at IBM, Microsoft, and Google at the time when those companies were literally changing the world. So these were, in, when I worked there, they were the, the three most prominent company, companies of their time. And, uh, and I worked on projects that were really life-changing, humanity-changing. So at Google, I spent uh, 12 years at Google, seven of which I was the vice president of emerging markets. So I, uh, I basically established Google's operations in more than half of Google worldwide. So 50%, 48%, I think, percent of all Google presence in the world and of the languages. I think we launched more than 100 languages together uh, with a wonderful team. So I did that for seven years. And, and, and to launch a, a Google presence is not about hiring five salespeople. It literally is about building the internet, building the internet, building e-commerce, encouraging uh, you know, local content, getting democracy of knowledge and information, removing restrictions and so on. So it really made a massive difference. I was responsible for what was known as the four, the next 4 billion strategy, which was really reaching the, the next 4 billion people on the internet. When I joined Google, uh, Google's usage was a fraction of that. And then I moved as if this was not lucky enough I moved to Google X and I became the chief business officer of Google X. Uh, X is the place where Google did all of the quirky, unusual innovations, self-driving cars and Project Loon and so on. And I was assigned the responsibility of making X meet the world. If you want as chief business officer, I was supposed to, uh, to, to get those innovations to be uh, either realistic enough to meet the world or to make the world excited enough to meet them when they were not realistic. And accordingly, I was a big part of the design of the what is now known as the Moonshot Factory of X. Uh, it was just an incredible experience. Uh, it all started at a very young age. So I'm, I'm born and raised in Egypt, uh, educated in public school, public university in Egypt. So practically uneducated. And then when you you know when you see how far my life has gone, it's just quite a blessing to in, in every possible way and a lot of luck just so that. 
people understand anyone that tells you oh i made it nobody makes it uh, it was a ton of luck on the way <laughs> Uh, so, so that was one part of my life. On top of the corporate career, I was also a very successful uh, stocks trader uh, as a secondary job uh, in my early, uh, my late twenties. So, um, so uh, you know, and I, I, I co-founded more than twenty businesses as an entrepreneur. So, uh, you know, it seems that uh, I moved from having absolutely nothing in Egypt by my mid twenties to having everything that everyone dreams of in. Uh, Dubai by the, by my late twenties, a span of four to five years, and I was absolutely miserable. I was completely clinically depressed. Okay, which is not an unusual story. I think you you probably will know. So you, the more life blessed me, the more depressed I became, and I needed to find the path out of that. Where that's when my second life started, if you want. Uh, at the time, I had everything everyone dreams of, you know, beautiful, amazing, wise woman that accepted me as her husband and gave me two wonderful children. And basically, I, um, you know, I, I just couldn't find my path out of unhappiness for a very long time. And uh, simply because I couldn't understand what the text in which unhappiness books or documentaries or teachings were, were, were mentioned, I'm I'm an engineer, I'm a mathematician, I want facts and data and logic and so on. And so I searched for a way that worked, which was an engineering view of happiness, aided by my wonderful son, who was an absolute tiny little Zen monk since he was born. So I would figure things out from an engineering point of view, like a machine, really, What? how does the happiness machine work? And he would give me the heart side of it. Uh, you know, you know what you what the instinctive happiness feels like for someone who's a Zen monk, and together we built a model that succeeded. And then, of course, as some people may know, life tested the model by Ali, my son, sadly leaving our world uh, due to medical malpractice when he was 21 and a half. Uh, he went for a very simple surgical operation, and five things went wrong, all of them preventable, mm-hmm. all of them correctable. And uh, within four hours, he was no longer with us. And that's when everything changed. So my second life began when instead of, of course, I grieve him until today. I mean, don't get me wrong. But instead of just, you know, collapsing and hitting my head against the wall, I was inspired to write what he taught me in the book that you read, Solve for Happy. And Solve for Happy was my attempt to keep my son's essence alive, if you want. I was basically saying, look, he's gone. There's nothing I can do to bring him back. But at least I can make, I can keep his his essence alive if I share it with, at the time was what, what was uh, an ambition of 10 million people. Uh, and so it happened within six weeks. We were reaching 87 million people by, by, by six weeks from the publication of the book uh, on videos online and so on. The book became an international bestseller almost everywhere. It published, it published in 31 languages. And my life flipped upside down since then. I've been trying to go around the world and help people find happiness. The mission grew from 10 million happy to 1 billion happy, which we would never achieve, but it's a very nice target to have. Uh, and, and that's where my life is today. Yeah, yeah, 1 billion people happy would be very nice to aim for. As a uh, your, your book, Soul for Happy, as a true engineer, you wanted the a mathematical approach to happiness. It's easy to just say, go and be happy. But how did you come up with a mathematical formula? And I guess, what is that mathematical formula? And how can everyone apply that to their own happiness? 
Well, it is, um, it, I, it came out of need. As I told you, I was really struggling. I was really, really struggling. And I, then I was sitting in a cafe one day listening to Super Tramp. I don't expect you to remember Super Tramp. Uh, oh, definitely. Uh, Goodbye, yeah, stranger. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there you go. That's someone <laughs> who anyway. knows his music. Yeah, uh, uh, Jonesy's head shaking song. his head. It's like not me. Super yeah. logical yeah. song. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> the logical song. I was listening to the logical song, and the logical song goes something like, uh, when I was young, it seemed that life was so wonderful and all the birds on the trees were singing so happily. And then they send me away to make me to teach me how to be uh, sensible, logical, critical, cynical. And that contrast literally got me stopping to think because I was in that place where I was very, very happy as a child until my, uh, you know, I married my college sweetheart. We were 20, I, uh, you know, I was 25 then. And, and then somehow I got sucked into the world, you know, became cynical and, and pro a professional, if you want. And when that happened, I became ha unhappier and unhappier and unhappier. And I think that contrast was my starting point. I realized with a ton of research, like I really, really uh, pushed myself I'm mo almost 40 minutes on YouTube uh, that you, you know, if you watch videos of children playing, you realize that we're all born happy. And so that happiness is not something you get from outside you. It's actually innate within you. And that what actually happens to us is we go out of our default setting of happiness into unhappiness. So, you know, your default state is happy and then you cover that up with reasons for unhappiness. And it just hit me that inside, under that mountain of depression I was feeling, there was a happy person in there. And that all I needed to do was to remove the reasons for unhappiness, to find out what they are and remove them. And don't laugh, please. I know it sounds funny now that when you look at it from the outside, but in my mathematical engineering brain, I was like, who would want to waste his time trying to find all of those reasons? Let's just find an equation, right? Mm -hmm. and, and literally told myself, Okay, it's easy to find an equation for happiness because I can recognize moments in my life where I felt clearly happy. If I can list down all of those moments and find what's common between them, okay, then that common thread among them is what describes the happiness equation. And every, every other point outside that common thread is unhappiness. Easy, right? And so I did exactly that. I prepared something that was called the happy list. I remember 92 data points at the time. I feel happy when my daughter smiles. I feel happy when I have a cup of coffee. Um, you know, I, I feel happy when I learn something new. I feel happy when I'm with good people. Uh, and, and so I, I tried to, I attempted to, uh, to, to find what is common across all of those, those data points. And it's actually not that complicated at all. Every moment in your life you have ever felt happy was not about a specific event uh, that life gave you. It was about a comparison that happens in your brain between that event and how you want life to be. Okay, mm -hmm. so you know, take take anything. Uh, rain doesn't make anyone happy or unhappy. Rain sometimes makes you happy when you want to water your plants, and makes you unhappy if you want to be in the sun, right? Uh, you know, uh, a tall, blonde, wonderful, attractive partner doesn't make anyone happy or unhappy. Sometimes it makes you happy. She makes you happy, and sometimes, uh, or he makes you happy, or sometimes. Uh, you know, she makes you miserable. There is really no inherent value of happiness in anything in particular. As a matter of fact, even lockdowns, when I, I know Australia is in, in lockdown, uh, you know, lockdowns make some of us very happy because they find time to reflect and connect with family and, you know, avoid commute and so on, and makes others unhappy, you know, you know who want to be social and connect with others and feel their freedom. 
So, so you can summarize that in a very simple equation. Your happiness is equal to or greater than the difference between the events of your life or your perception of the events of your life and your expectation of how life should be. Okay, so you, 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 you compare the event as you see it and your expectation and you end up in a place where you either get a positive, a zero or a negative. If you get a, a, a positive or a zero, you're happy. If you get a negative, you're unhappy. It's, it's as simple as that. Okay, so, so uh, and you can apply that to a lot of examples. Uh, nature makes us happy, not because the event of nature is actually perfect. As a matter of fact, when you're out in nature, there are ants and noises and you know and trees are never really straight and you know bushes are, are taking over other things and so on right but you're happy in nature because this is your expectation you you expect nature to be like that nobody ever sits in front of the ocean and says i like the view but can someone please mute the sound right <laughs> you know that with the with the view of the beautiful view of an ocean there is a monotonous sound and you're gonna love that okay mm. so 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 the once i discovered that believe it or not, like we do in engineering, I felt I had found the breakthrough. Because basically from then onwards, if you know how the machine works, it's just a question of, so what makes us see events uh, uh, wrong and what makes us set expectations that are unrealistic? And if you can get that right, 99% of the time, our life is good enough for us to be happy. Yeah, well, that's so good. So engineering-wise, you found the equation, which are... Yeah, very, very powerful. And then once we got the equation, it's sort of tweaking it in different ways to actually maximize our our happiness. And, you know, you mentioned yeah. expectations is a big thing. And it's, as you said, it's a simple equation in many ways, but perhaps not easy. So what sort of things can we be doing in our lives to actually tweak it to maximize this equation for ourselves? So, so, so there are layers of reasons for unhappiness. One of them is that you're reacting to the wrong thing. Okay. Uh, the second is that you're reacting to the right thing, but you're not really doing anything about it, so it's persistent and staying, okay? And the third is that you're reacting to the right thing, and you actually cannot do anything about it, okay? So, so most of the unhappiness that we feel, believe it or not, happens in the brain. It's our choice. Hmm? And, and you, you need to be able to understand how the, the machine works, huh? the machine of your brain is negative. Your brain is, has no interest whatsoever if a tiger shows up to tell you, oh my God, look at how majestic that animal is. Your brain wants to say you're going to die, right? So, you know, your, your, your boss says something annoying, your, your, your brain will say we're going to die. Uh, you know, the, prior, the premier says we're going to lock you down, everyone will say we're going to die. Your partner is a little irritated today, so she says something hurtful and you go like, okay, my love is going to die and, and so on. Right? So that negativity bias is honestly and truly uh, fixable either through you know, the truth, finding the truth, okay? or uh, by reacting to the truth. The, the biggest reasons for unhappiness is we don't do that. So I follow a very simple flowchart. Remember, unhappiness is a survival mechanism. Okay, unhappiness is there for a reason. It makes you feel, you know, like uh, before we, we got together now, I told you, I, I looked at the calendar invite, I couldn't find the link, I panicked. Like that panic made me text my uh, dear friend and, and, and producer and chief, uh, chief uh, uh, of staff of my, you know, of my efforts and happiness, Munir, and Munir basically texted back and said, oh, no, no, here is the link, right? The panic triggered action, right? 
by the way, then I looked at the calendar invite, and actually there was a link there, so there was no need for the panic to start. Okay, uh, so 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 I uh, I you know so take that as an example. Huh? It's like a fire alarm. Your brain goes like, oh, something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. Okay, I follow a very simple flowchart. Three steps. Step number one is I say, is this true, brain? Is there actually no link, or have you not searched well enough? Right. Uh, if if there isn't a problem and you actually realize there is a link, then there was no reason to panic. You drop it. Okay. Uh, you know, most of the time, the challenge we have as humans is that we don't feel unhappy because of the event, but because of what our brains tell us what the event is. Okay. So your partner says something hurtful on Friday. Hmm? Uh, on Saturday morning, you, you wake up and you go like, mm, remember that 4 p.m. Friday, that... Play that again, play that again, like like the Netflix of unhappiness, okay? Mm-hmm. And then on Saturday, we start, to, on, on Sunday, we start to add to it, oh, she doesn't love me anymore. And then on Monday, you say it's because I'm fat. On Thursday, you say I'm going to spend the less, rest of my life alone. None of that is true. All of those thoughts are not actually what happened. What happened is she said something hurtful. That's the truth, right? So if your brain tells you uh, uh, I'm unhappy because she said something hurtful, that's the truth. If your brain tells you, I'm unhappy because she doesn't love me anymore, that's no longer the truth. And when you detect that, okay, you suddenly go like, is that true brain? I mean, my daughter, for example, if my daughter, one time we had an argument and I went out of, my, uh, of her apartment just to think about what we were talking about. And, you know, as the minute I hit the, the street, my brain goes like, Aya, my, my daughter's name is Aya. Aya doesn't love you anymore. Okay. Where did that, you, did you get that from? You know, crazy little piece of meat, right? And, 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 and yeah, and my brain goes like, she doesn't love you anymore. But yesterday she, she sent me a hug on WhatsApp. And today in the morning when I went to, to meet her, she jumped out of her place and hugged me and made me pancakes. And then we went into an argument brain, okay? So, so it's not that she doesn't love me. If she doesn't, if, that, if what, what, what's triggering my unhappiness is not true, drop it. That's number one. If it is true, then question two is, what can I do about it, right? And if there is something you can do about it, then do it. Text your, your, you know, your partner and say, hey, baby, what you said on Friday hurt me. Can we please talk about it over then? Done. The, if you do something about it, the reason goes away, right? And then there is, of course, things you cannot do anything about. I lost my wonderful Ali. I cannot bring him back, okay? And it happens a lot. You know, you lose your job or you get locked down or whatever, huh? There are things that you cannot change, so you can't do anything about them. And that would be the time for what I call commit, committed acceptance. And, and committed acceptance is very straightforward. Acknowledging and accepting that you can't change the baseline of what, of what your life has become and doing what you can to make your life better despite the presence of this new baseline. Okay? So Ali left. I cannot bring him back. I need to accept this, and then I need to do something that makes my life and perhaps the life of others better. So writing his model, uh, you know, uh, setting myself a mission of one billion happy, all of that's amazing, right? And it doesn't bring him back. Understand that. It doesn't bring him back. But at least it makes me engage in the positive side of reality. It makes it not for nothing that he left, if you know what I mean. Now, when you get that, you suddenly start to realize that every time you go through this process, you know, is it true? What can I do about it? Can I commit and accept? Hmm? The more you do it like a, like a monk practicing, the more you realize that 99.99% of the time, 
the shit that we feel unhappy about is actually not worth it at all. Okay? That most of the time events meet expectations. Okay? And when you realize that, that's when you could probably start practicing what I call the 675 model, which you read in Solve for Happy. That there are systemic reasons why we feel unhappy. Okay? There, there are illusions, there are blind spots in our brains, there are truths that we ignore. Okay? And if you can pinpoint those clearly, then you won't even have to go through the process. Like you get stuck in traffic, hmm? you don't even have to go through the process. Is it true that I'm stuck in traffic? Can I do something about it? Can I commit and accept? You suddenly start to say, yeah, being stuck in traffic is the truth. I chose to live in a big city. This is the nature of living in a big city. That's it, right? And once you do that, once you overcome those six, seven, five, happiness becomes very much a second nature. I like it. I like it a lot. And uh, it's a good, nice and simple three-step model that I say simple, but it's, uh, I suppose, in the, the heat of an argument or in the, in the depths of your, your doom spiral of thinking how bad everything could be is a, is, is a, is a tough one to do, but I think it's a, it's a good way to pull yourself out of it. Um, and just to make a, make a super hard jump, you've got a brand new book uh, coming out uh, just around the corner, Scary Smart. Um, we've read yes. uh, a few books on the podcast, sort of around futurism, around tech, around AI, like The Inevitable by Kevin Kelly, uh, Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark, The Future is Faster Than You Think. Um, one thing that really stood out to me in your book, Scary Smart, you said there are three inevitables when it comes to AI. You said the first inevitable is that AI is going to happen. And I guess from, from what sort of we've read and what we've heard, it seems like, yeah, that probably does seem inevitable. The second that AI will outsmart humans, I guess we're starting to see it. Um, AI has been like, mm. you know, chess champion for decades, really. So it's sort of like, I guess it's happening. And then the third inevitable, and this is probably the scary part, you say bad things will happen, uh, which is very mm. scary to hear. So I guess, uh, you know, two-part question. One, what's going to happen? And two, why is it inevitable? What's, what's coming for us? It's, it's inevitable, interestingly, because of game theory. So, so AI, every technology we've ever developed, most people see the technology after we found the breakthrough. Okay? But when you're sitting inside the technology labs, there are normally long years of research until you actually find the breakthrough. The breakthrough on AI happened with deep learning. Around the turn of the century, we figured out ways for machines to learn and become intelligent on their own. We actually don't program them to become intelligent. We program them, the pro, we program the process of becoming intelligent, but not the actual intelligence. So we would basically put a machine in front of an Atari game and say, uh, maximize the score, but we basically don't, let, don't teach it how to play. And it figures it out on its own, like a child, right? With deep learning, we found the breakthrough, but and that basically means that the rest is engineering, that, you know, the process going forward of developing intelligence is going to go through ups and downs and so on, but we, we will get there. It's fine. It's done. Okay. Uh, and the thing is that you already see that it's done. Uh, you know, most of what people ignore is that you have already dealt with probably 70 machines already today that are all more intelligent than you are, whether it was <laughs> when you swiped on Instagram, uh, you know, when you uh, when you walked the streets or, you know, uh, uh, did some kind of whatever on WhatsApp and you were surveillance and, you know, machines are finding trends and language recognition and translation and everything. Now, 
The problem is that, that's, you know, that idea of the machines already being there could easily be stopped if humanity came together and said, hey, that's it, enough AI, let's not develop any more of it. And the game, this is when game theory comes in because there is absolutely no way humanity is going to agree to stop AI uh, simply because uh, America will continue to develop its AI because China is developing AI and Russia is developing AI and Google will continue to develop AI because Facebook is going to uh, continue to develop AI. And, you know, every new startup is going to develop AI because investors are going to continue to pour money in it. Now, when that is the case, then the reasons why we're not going to stop it, are not just technological, they are actually human psychology that leads us to that place. Now, with that in mind, the natural progression of AI is what Ray Kurzweil, uh, Kurzweil predicts, is that uh, we will become the smartest being on the planet, which is inevitable too, uh, that, that machines will become smarter than we are. Uh, machines are predicted to be the smartest being on the planet as soon as, as, as 2029. So, so you heard this correctly. It is eight years from today. Okay, the smartest being on the planet is going to be a machine in eight years, and that's not a world we understand because uh, because everything everything you know, including our ability to record this between London and Sydney, or London and Australia. Where are you guys in Australia? Uh, Melbourne. Melbourne, oh, there you go, the real lockdown. Uh, so, you know, so, uh, <laughs> Making global news, I didn't realize that, I like it. <laughs> uh, yeah, you are actually, I have lots of friends in Melbourne too, so my heart's with you. Um, no, but, but so I, the idea is, you know, the, the, we built this because of our smarts. Hmm? Uh, the, the, the challenge is uh, when the, 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 the smartest being on the planet is a machine, we have no idea what that world will, you know, become. Uh, you know, the the more in, the more scary uh, prediction again, Ray Kurzweil. And I I believe it's twenty forty nine. He says it's twenty forty five, where the machines will be a billion times smarter than humans. Okay, mm. a billion times with a B. That basically is the comparison between Einstein and a fly. And and the question is, how do we get the the Einstein to not to not have the urge to crush the fly, especially <laughs> when the fly is as annoying as we are, as we humans are. We're destroying the planet, single-use plastic, pollution, all of that. You know, there is an interesting uh, topic to talk about here, and it is never spoken about. It's strange because I, you know, I sometimes basically think that the easiest way to hide anything is to keep it in plain sight. And the truth is... The biggest pandemic of our world is not COVID-19. The biggest pandemic of our world is that we are creating God and rendering ourselves obsolete within eight years. And nobody's talking about it. <laughs> nobody's talking about it. Now, the third inevitable is that people think of bad things happening with AI in terms of Vicky, of iRobot and RoboCop and so on. Actually, that's not what's going to happen at all. Believe it or not, humanity is not going to live that long. Okay, uh, so so those kinds of scenarios uh, will be either you, AI will will create a utopia before them, okay, or we will have to deal with so many other scenarios before we get there, okay, that are actually very practical, uh, that that are happening around the corner, like literally today, and that are quite uh, impactful on our life. For example, just like good people are developing AI to resolve global warming or climate change, there are bad people developing AI for cybercrime, okay? Uh, just like, uh, you know, 
some people are you know developing AI for self-driving cars and safe vehicles. Others are developing killing machines, right? And and it doesn't really matter how good the machine is. Hmm? If it sides with the wrong guy, we're in trouble. Hmm? And I, I argue that, so Scary Smart is not a book about artificial intelligence, by the way. It's, it's entirely about humanity on the backdrop of artificial intelligence. I argue that for us humanity, everybody thinks that the other guy is the bad guy. So the Americans will be developing war machines because the bad guy is the Chinese. Go and ask the Chinese who's the bad guy. They'll say it's the American, right? And so here's an interesting ethics dilemma, you know, of, of, yes, AI will be developed and it will side with some guy, but that guy is the bad guy for the other guy. And, and that's a very interesting place to be. There are also other scenarios, like machines versus machines, for example. More, a, a good chunk of the trades happening in stock markets today are done by machines against machines. Hmm? Remember 1987 and Black Monday, machine trading drops the market 22.6% in a couple of hours, right? Why? Because there is no way for humans to come in and actually stop the machines versus the machines because we pull ourselves out of that because we're not competent. Imagine if machines found an incredibly you know, clever trade that's going to make you a million dollars and then they texted you and said, can I make it? They don't do that. They make the trade on their own. They, they build their own strategies. You're too slow for them, right? And so scenarios like that and you know, scenarios like the dwindling value of humanity, you know, basically the reality or, or bugs or simple bugs. You know, someone would write a, a wrong piece of code. Huh? All of this is bound to happen, okay? And if it happens... Uh, it's going to have a devastating impact. My prediction is that by the end of this story, by the end of, of the evolution of AI, we will be fine, okay? But Scary Smart is about saying we need to take action now so that it's not painful on the path from now to fine, okay? Because it could be very painful in the process. Well, there's so much in that. Yeah, yeah. Part, partly shit scared, partly uh, exciting. <laughs> so sorry, I don't mean that at all. No, it's, it's good. I hope it will end up being a being a story of hope. If we if we finish the whole story, it is actually a story. <laughs> well, of hope. with your book and um, us becoming more educated, hopefully with the game theory, um, we did read a book, The Art of Strategy. There is a way to solve game theory, but no one really does, it, and that's just having some sort of consequences or or yeah. um, something. But it's obviously not there. So. I guess I'm really interested in 2029, uh, AI is more intelligent than us. I guess what is the definition of intelligence in that sense? Are we going with a pub and then a humanoid robot pops in and is uh, smarter than us and more useful? No, and then also, not at all. I mean, from there, we're, look, we're using your analogy, the flea to Einstein. I guess from there, it's very hard to understand yeah. what intelligence is because we can't conceptualize it. But, but maybe we can have a crack at what that looks like. It's a great, great, great question. What is intelligence, right? So, so uh, f first of all, a lot of us, um, you know, sort of intermix robotics and artificial intelligence, okay? Robotics are but one uh, um, tool of agency for AI, okay? It is not the only tool of agency, and it is, uh, it is powered by AI, but it's not AI. Humanoids specifically are also a from science fiction and the work that Japan and, you know, Boston Dynamics and so on uh, do makes it look like robotics are the intelligent thing. No, it's the software behind uh, that that works. You know, think of yourself if you're spiritual, that there is something that animates you. It's not just your physical form, 
that thing that animates you is your true essence. Hmm? It's not. It's not that you can move your muscles. It's that you can make that you have the agency to make decisions that may that move your muscles. Now, intelligence is the ability to autonomously and independently learn and solve problems. Okay, and to have the agency and ability to uh, apply that intelligence in the world. And and when you really start to think about it, uh, AI is going to be generally intelligent, more intelligent than humans in 2029. But in artificial special intelligence, they are more intelligent than us in everything already. Okay? So, you know, the world champion of chess has been a machine since 1989. Hmm. Uh, the world champion of Go, the most complex strategy game on the planet, is AlphaGo. The world champion of Jeopardy, very complex language game, uh, is, uh, is Watson, IBM Watson, and so on and so forth. The best driver is a self-driving car. The best surveillance officer is a machine, and so on and so forth. Now... Uh, Artificial general intelligence is when those things become one being, okay? And so a self-driving car would benefit from surveillance information and, and a surveillance information would benefit from a, a self-driving car camera and so on and so forth. And, and when you start to think about that, you start to suddenly realize how stupid we are, okay? Because we as humans, we're limited by a few very interesting things. Huh? We, we, have, we have very amazing machines that are called brains but they're limited in processing power. That's why we filter a lot of the reality around us. And, you know, that's why sometimes you can't calculate quickly and so on and so forth. We're also limited in storage capacity. We don't have, we can't remember everything. Okay. We're also limited in bandwidth. So for me to explain Scary Smart to you and, and your readers uh, to, and, and your audience, it takes us 20 minutes to talk about some concepts while the machine can download Scary Smart <laughs> in 20 microseconds. Okay and grasp the entire thing in 20 microseconds. So for the machines, they have infinite compute power that is now even quadrupling uh, at pace hmm? uh, with quantum computing around the corner, right? Uh, they, there is, I mean, there is no AI on quantum yet, but it's bound to happen so, sooner or later. They have an unlimited memory capacity. Their memory is every event that's ever been documented in history, okay? They have unlimited uh, capacity to, for knowledge uh, because the internet is their uh, is their knowledge pool, uh, they have unlimited communication bandwidths, so they can connect to each other and align. And you know they have unlimited sensory capabilities. This is what most people don't realize. So AI knows what you ate yesterday, knows who you slept with, knows where you're going tomorrow because it can predict that. It knows what's the pollution level in Beijing and what's the temperature in San Francisco. Right? It knows all of that all at the same time, and decisions informed by that are by definition decisions that are much smarter than uh, decisions that are inform informed by less information, less compute power, and so on and so forth. So when artificial general, general intelligence comes together, those, all of those functionalities will be not a human versus a machine in a game of chess, but it's a human versus a machine in everything. Okay? And in everything, they're going to be more intelligent than we are. Uh, now, that sounds scary, but also sounds amazing if you really think about it, okay? And the way I think about it is this, and, and please don't uh, judge me until we finish this uh, bit of the conversation. My wonderful son Ali, when he, uh, when he was born, okay, he came to the world as a blank canvas. He basically was eager and willing to learn and eager and willing to do what we think was right. What we told him was right is what he became. Okay, And in no time at all, Ali was my absolute mentor and teacher. He was my absolute guru and, and wise 
you know, when he was so wise, I used to tell my friends when he was 16, I used to tell my friends when I grow older, I want to be like Ali, right? Now, this is exactly what you want for your children. You want them to be more intelligent than you. You want them to be more capable than you. You want them to be more successful than you. And if you, if you start to think of artificial intelligence in that sense, hmm, if we can have that enormous amount of intelligence on our side, that would be amazing. Uh, Minsky, who is the almost the father of AI, so he started the Dartmouth uh, workshop back in 1956, uh, basically said, uh, when, he, when he was asked about the threat of AI, he didn't mention their intelligence as the threat. He just said, we just have no way of knowing if they will have our best interest in mind. Okay? And that's, this is truly the only thing we need to think about. It's not about them being intelligent that's the problem, because we don't make choices based on intelligence. Realize. We make choices based on our ethics and values as informed by our intelligence, okay? So your intelligence is not what tells you to, uh, you know, to go into a, a school and shoot children, okay? It's your code of ethics that tells you this is the right thing to do for me now, okay? It's not your intelligence that tells you to walk into a building that's on fire and save children. That actually, from an intelligence point of view, sounds stupid, okay? It is your ethics that says, Children that are in harm need safety, and I am capable of doing that, so I'm going to be a fireman. Now, that is the turning point of Scary Smart. So as, I, as you saw in the book, I wrote it in two sections. One is the scary part, mm -hmm. and one is what I call the good part. And I have to tell you, I was reading the audiobook this week, uh, recording the audiobook, and by chapter five, I myself was like so scared. <laughs> like, damn, this, like, why am I writing this? Like, this is so scary, hmm? But, but that's because we looked at AI as machines. So we, we thought that they could be under our control, which they will not be. And because we looked at AI as them, as the enemy, as the threat, right? By chapter six, I realized that no, they are sentient beings who are capable of consciousness, capable of emotions, and capable of following a code of ethics and a value system. And that is the key. Because when you, and I explain those in detail, maybe we don't have the time today, but I explain in detail that they're going to be even more conscious than we are. They're going to have even more emotions than we can, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, we can ever feel. And so the game is if, if, if choices are made based on ethics, then what we need to focus on is to teach the machines the right ethics. I use the analogy of Superman, right? Superman comes to, to Earth with superpowers. Hmm? Absolutely, the absolute superpower is intelligence in our world. Huh? It's not the superpower that makes Superman Superman. It's the way the Kent family raises him to you know, serve and protect that makes him Superman. If they had raised him to make more money and rob banks and kill their enemies, he would have become supervillain. Mm -hmm. It's not the superpower. It is the ethics behind it. And there is a path for you and I and everyone listening for us to build the right value system, the right ethics code for AI. And if we manage to do that, we're going to be amazing. We're, we're going to be in a utopia for the rest of humanity's life.
I think you you must have preempted where I was. My next question was going to be because obviously it feels like to me who's got no idea about coding or computers or you know anything too serious about building a. I don't think I could go out there and build an AI, but uh, it seems like the the software engineers or the governments or the big companies maybe they've got a lot to do with it. But what can individuals do to uh, to start to sort of shape the path forward? The, the, the software engineers and the governments and the regulators can do nothing about it. That, this is really important to understand. Okay, so so the minute an AI is, is built, hmm, it's like a child being birthed. I promise you, if you know how it works from the inside, there is yeah, there are dreamers that are attempting to solve what is in computer science known as the as the control problem. It's basically trying to control your teenage girl. Okay, good luck with that. Right? Especially if your, if especially if your teenage girl uh, daughter is uh, is is the smartest being on the planet, a billion times smarter than you. Right. So 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 let's not get there. Huh? The truth She's going is, to the party. Absolutely, and the party is going to be what she likes, and you have no say in it. Now, the the the, the truth is, you should be able to control how your teenage daughter is going is going to going to become when she's a teenage daughter. When she's, when she's one and a half months old, okay? That's when you start instilling good parenting into your life so that she sees a good example that makes her a good adult, right? And that simply is it, huh? So when code is put out on the internet to uh, inform Instagram um, recommendation, recommendation engine, it's not the code that brings us so many shaking booties and you know girls that are squatting and <laughs> silly videos, right? That it's not. Have the you code. been looking at it's our Instagram you. though? Our show, has been live. I actually did. I did a very accurate experiment. So my my daughter loves cats. Okay, so I constantly open Instagram and search for cats, right? And I send those to uh, to my daughter, and she laughs, and I'm I feel very happy. I don't. I hate cats, but. Don't tell her. Uh, anyway, so so there was one time when I when I was writing so uh, uh, scary smart, and I opened my search uh, bit, and there are twenty cats on the screen, and one girl working out in the gym, right? So I suddenly go like, "Ooh, that's interesting." So I click on the girl on the gym, okay, and sw- and and switch off, right? I mean, the, the whatever reel plays, and then we're we're done. Right. The next day, there are three girls working out in the gym. The following day, there are twelve. The, 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 the third day, there are no cats. Right. And 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 that's a very interesting view because because the reality is the machine now thought that Mo no longer likes cats. Okay. And that Mo is very into girls who work out in the. I don't complain by the way. Some of them are amazing. Right? But, yeah, uh, right. but, but 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 the truth is. Hmm, we are teaching the machine. Now, that's a very silly example. But when Donald Trump used to tweet, okay, uh, there was one tweet at the top and 30,000 hate speech below it. Okay? One tweet comes from Donald Trump. The first tweet that comes after that is someone calling him an idiot. And then the next two are people fighting and calling that guy an idiot. And then the following four calling everyone an idiot. Right? <laughs> and and, and, and the AI is learning two things in this process. One is learning that Jack, Jill, and and John all like to call each other idiots, right? So, you know, next time a Donald Trump tweet shows up, they're going to show it to Jack, Jill, and John immediately so that they have the chance to call each other's idiots. Uh, but, But it also learns that humanity at large 
has that tendency of bashing each other, right? And so you could you could see multiple examples. You know, Tay, the the Twitter bot of uh, of Microsoft, or Alice, the Twitter bot uh, bot of uh, of. Uh, 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 Yandex in Russia, or uh, you know uh, um, uh, Norman, which was an experiment, but by M MIT, you put a, a chatbot out there and you expose it to those kinds of conversations, and it becomes a psychopath. It becomes violent. It becomes anti-equality. It becomes a lot of everything. Right? We are teaching them, and and the trick is very straightforward. The trick is if we keep teaching them what we are showing out there today, they're going to grow up to be nasty teenagers and and that's the truth right but but the truth is this and this is what shocks me huh? humanity is actually not like that you you guys are wonderful people everyone i know is an amazing person as a matter of fact humanity is actually an amazing species if you've ever felt love or composed a piece of music or observed a piece of art a work of art you realize that we are an amazing species the problem is that we're showing the worst of us to the world Okay, somehow media, whether that's news media that is pro-negativity pro or, you know, TV or whatever other social media, which is pro-ego and narcissism, has taught us that the way to fit into the world is to show that side of us, is to take that one little angle and twist yourself in a way where your butt looks perfect and then take that picture and put it out there, which is not your butt at all. We all know that human butts are butts. This is the this is the truth, right? You know, there is nothing you know to 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 miss about that. And and the truth is, because this is now the majority, scary smart is a call to action to say it is about time. If you want to you know create a world for us in the next fifty years, to start changing that, to start showing up as good parents. Not all of us, by the way. It doesn't need to be all of us. Just enough of us, one percent of us need to show out there in the world and say, no, 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 no. This does not represent humanity. Hmm? What represents humanity is the best of us. Okay? When one guy uh, goes into a school and, and shoots children and it hits the headlines 200,000 times, hmm, it makes it look like humanity is horrible. No. Every one of the 400 million people that hear the news disapprove of it. Okay? Mm -hmm. Humanity is wonderful in disapproving of that act. But the way our life is configured is making it look like we're, horrible, we're a horrible species. And we have to change that. We have to show the true essence of what makes us human to ourselves, to others, and to the machines so that we end up with a, with a world where the machines recognize that there's no point squ squashing the fly. Wow. Well, there's, there's so much in that. And uh, both your books, I guess, going forward, Smart AI, if people, you know, in the future, maybe lose their purpose in terms of what their job are. They've got the other volume, which is solve for happy. If things aren't going so well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, and there are many other, many more coming, and and you know, my podcast is actually spreading a good message of happiness as well. But I don't think the machines will actually create a dystopia. I, I say that at the end of the book, I basically talk about uh, what I call the fourth inevitable, hmm. and the fourth inevitable is that uh, think of it this way. We've created our civilization using our intelligence. We've destroyed it using our limited intelligence. So, so if we were intelligent enough, we would have found a way for me to get a watermelon from the supermarket without single-use plastic. Okay? Mm -hmm. As simple as that. Hmm? We're not that intelligent. We're, 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 we have limited intelligence that's serving our egos and greeds and, you know, and, 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 uh, and uh, you know, our human 
uh, urges if you want, but we are not intelligent enough to, to include the rest of it. And, and if the machines are smarter than us, they're going to figure that out very quickly. I believe that, that the smartest form of intelligence on the planet is the, is the intelligence of life itself. And life is all about live and let live. It's not about squashing the fly. It wants the fly to multiply and procreate. And it wants, you know, the, the gazelles to, to, to run around and for the tiger to eat one of them, but not all of them. It, it wants that. Okay. And I think that's where we're going to end up being. Well, I'm, I'm super excited for what the future is bringing. At least there's going to be a lot of change. And I, I personally see that as exciting. Mo, you've got yeah. such a diverse set of skills. You've gone deep and you're an expert and, you know, in solving the happy all the way through to AI and your, and your past. So what have been some of the books that's been really influential on you um, going forward, you know, in, over your life and, and also your career and, and learning and, and skills and everything like that? Hmm. Tur- turning points has be- have been good, good to great. Remember that? Uh, uh, who was the author? Jim Collins. Yeah. But then, but then, definitely, when uh, when Malcolm Gladwell came on the scene, my life flipped upside down. I adore Michael Gladwell, uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, you know, f- Tipping Point, uh, Outliers. Uh, you know, Blink are amazing pieces of literature. Uh, on the business side as well, I think I really enjoyed. Um, uh, so it sounds horrible. I really enjoyed the work of uh, the Forty Eight Laws of Power. Uh, uh, Robert Greene. Robert Green. We love yeah. Robert Greene. Uh, yeah, uh, and ev- and everything that Robert Greene wrote, as a matter of fact, is an incredible piece of in-depth analysis. I never used it for power, but I used it to defend myself against power, and I thought these were very important for me in my corporate life. In my uh, happiness life, uh, there are the undisputed leaders. I mean, Eckhart Tolle, uh, you know, completely flipped my life upside down. Um Byron Katie, Loving What Is, is incredible. Uh, Michael Singer, The Untethered Soul, is an amazing book. And I actually recently, only recently knew that he had uh, Surrender Experience before that. Amaz- amazing book as well. It's an incredible, uh, enlightening and, and really, you know, a breath of fresh air, if you want. And the list goes on and on and on. I mean, uh, um, yeah, I, I read like a, a worm and... Uh, I'm going to cheat and use your podcast going forward, but uh, <laughs> yeah, but I, oh, yeah. too good. Well, Mo, where can people find more about you and, of course, the brand new book? Where do you want to direct people to? So, uh, first of all, I answer every question I get. So I know that's a huge commitment, and I get thousands of messages a week. But uh, please contact me on social media, and I will actually respond. See. Uh, I am Mo underscore Gaudet on Instagram and Mo Gaudet on LinkedIn are my most active platforms. Uh, go to mogaudet.com slash scary smart to learn about the book or just for Mo Gaudet uh, scary smart to pre-order it. It's available uh, already for release in September 30th everywhere in the world uh, in English and in Dutch October 1st and then it follows from there. And then, uh, yeah, uh, Slomo, my podcast, S-L-O-M-O. Uh, is uh, now in the top half percent globally, focuses very much on the wisdom of those that I learn from. So it's actually quite an interesting conversation every day. And uh, what else? And yeah, find me. Catch me in the street, you know, um, or force me to buy you a coffee, whatever you want. I'm, I'm always there. <laughs> Thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Thanks so much for your books. Thanks for having me on your podcast and uh, looking forward to everything that you put out next. 
Yeah, I love what you guys are doing. I think you're both amazing and I'm very grateful for the opportunity. And I hope it gets a, a few people thinking today. 100%.